This particular incident was so shocking, actually, so extreme, that it made me stop and think, well, what does this tell us? Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Steve Hilton Show. Um, I don't know if uh, some of you have been following me on uh, my appearances on Fox News or maybe on some local radio outlets for the last week or so um, after a very surprise and brief stomach bug or food poisoning or something that I had towards the end of last week um, caused not it was it was simultaneous with the uh, Ron DeSantis Gavin Newsom debate. I'm not going to say that the debate made me sick, but it happened to coincide. Um, and, and, and that's now thankfully gone. I feel fine. But my voice is just all over the place, still very croaky. So I apologize for that. It's better than it was. It's not back to normal yet. I don't quite know why, because as I say, I feel completely fine. Um, so I hope you can bear with me during this episode. It's going to be a, a special, um, you know, croaky voiced episode of the Steve Hilton Show. But I do hope you enjoy it nonetheless. The big story um, is about the Hamas war, but it's not about just what's going on in the Middle East. To me, there was a highly revealing incident this week. I'm sure you've seen it. And I want to talk about what it says about the state of the Democratic Party and the left in America today, because I think it really illuminated something significant about what's been happening um, to the Democrats over the last few years. In a way, it crystallized everything, because this, this particular incident was so shocking, actually, so extreme, that it made me stop and think, well, what does this tell us? It tells us something that we've known for a while, but became really, really clear. The incident that I'm talking about is the interview, which, as I say, I'm sure you've seen, uh, which happened this uh, this past weekend with Pramila Jayapal. Pramila Jayapal, you may know, leading um, figure in Congress in the House of Representatives in Washington State. Um, she's chair of the Progressive Caucus, big figure in the Democratic Party. And she was on with Dana Bash on CNN, and she was asked to condemn the use of rape as a weapon of war, which is, of course, what Hamas has been doing. That's been well documented, absolutely horrific. And here's how that exchange went. We always talk about the impact of war on women in particular. In fact, I remember 20 years ago, I did a petition around the war in Iraq. Have you said, saying have that, you talked about it since oh, October absolutely. 7th? And I've condemned what Hamas has done. I've condemned Specifically all of women. the actions. Absolutely. The, the rape, the, of course. But I think we have to remember that Israel is a democracy. That is why they are a strong ally of ours. And if they do not comply with international humanitarian law, they are bringing themselves to a place that makes it much more difficult strategically for them yeah. to be able to build the kinds of allies to keep public opinion yeah. with them. And frankly, uh, morally, I think we cannot say that one war crime deserves another. That is not what international humanitarian with, with, law says. Okay, with, with respect, I was just asking about the the women, and you turned it back to Israel. I'm asking you about Hamas, in fact. I already answered your question, Dana. I, I said it's horrific, and okay. I think that rape is horrific, sexual assault is horrific. I think that it happens in war situations. Terrorist organizations like Hamas obviously are using these as tools. Mm -hmm. However, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. She just couldn't bring herself 
to leave the exchange without throwing in that line about balance, right? She just couldn't bring herself to do it. And that is really revealing. So you've got to put yourself in her position, right? That is like the easiest question any politician can be asked. Do you condemn unequivocally uh, the use of sexual violence um, in, in this war? Of course. I mean, like what? How? No, we've all had harder questions than that to answer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Of course, that's like the most obvious question. So what is going on in her mind? That's why this is worth pausing on this incident and really looking at the anatomy of it and what it tells you about what's going on in politics. And I, and I want to unpack that for you because she's sitting, sitting there. She's asked this question. It's really easy to condemn it. She does condemn it, you know, to be fair. And she says she's always condemned it. And of course, of course, of course, blah, blah, blah. But then she can't leave it alone. She has to throw in this thing about balance. Why? Why did she have to do that? Well, because in her head, what is she worrying about? What, what is she thinking about in her head that made her say that? It actually tells you where the power lies in today's Democratic Party, because she's thinking of the activists, the hard left activists watching this interview and, and ready to pounce if she doesn't do something to condemn Israel and try and be even handed. That's what she's really worried about. Right. She's not worried about um, uh, giving the right answer to Dana Bash. She's not worried about the general TV audience. She's worried about not complying with the ideological code. Right. The, the, the absolute kind of mantra that has been laid down by the hard left ideologues that control the Democratic Party that have clearly you know, said in, in, in relation to this conflict, um, this, uh, this, this appalling, obscene attack on Israel by Hamas. That no, you can't unequivocally condemn it. It has to be, uh, the focus has now to be on Israel's war crimes, et cetera, et cetera, right? We know, we know all that. But that's what she's worried about. And that's why she couldn't leave it alone and just give a straightforward condemnation. She had to throw in that other bit. And that is so revealing because it tells you that today's Democratic Party really has been taken over by the hard left. It really has. And this exchange proved it better than almost anything else. And by the way, I mean, just one, one narrow point on this. I mean, these are the people who kind of lectured us and marched and, you know, me too, and great champions of women and all dressing up in their white suits in Congress to protest Trump in the suffragist white and, and the pussy hats, remember the pussy hats? So now, okay, you're going to have pussy hats for Palestine. I mean, it's just just astonishing, you know, the absolute kind of hypocrisy in relation to women's rights, that, that she, she couldn't just give a blanket condemnation there and not try and extend it to a political point about the Israelis. I mean, it's just, just really stunning. So it tells you that their principles that they claim to espouse aren't really principles at all. They're political positions. That's what they actually are. And this is a really, really important point to bear in mind, not just on this issue of, you know, what's going on in the Middle East right now, because it applies to everything. And you see it across the board, where the ideology now trumps, certainly in this case, humanity, and the fact that you have this pretty inhuman response to a, to a question. It doesn't matter, the ideology comes first. It trumps practicality, in so many cases. And you look at the key issues that they constantly push forward because of this ideology that's driving the Democratic Party now, the hard left in control. And it's driving their responses on so many issues. And the key components of this ideology, I mean, some people call it a religion, um, but you, you see it in action because it's, it's so central to everything they say. It's climate, 
and race and gender. Those are the kind of three things that, that, that are really at the heart of, of, of what they go on about. And it, and, and it comes before everything else. So they push forward on the climate stuff, even though it has absolutely perverse consequences where they're raising the cost of living. They're forcing these massive subsidies onto um, uh, electric vehicles, even though people don't really want them, um, which are pushing the price up. The you know, Ford Motor Company losing $60,000 per EV, just pushing, pushing, pushing on this ideology, not leaving it to the market. Um, gas prices going up, energy costs going up, uh, jobs being cut. You know, they keep going on about how they want you know, blue collar jobs and Joe Biden's the champion of the middle class. And yet they're shutting down pipelines, you know, on day one, he did that because it's the ideology. Same with, with race, with gender. We see that playing out across the board in our schools um, and so on. And, and it shows that they've really left behind any kind of semblance of that kind of practical common sense, a kind of approach to politics where you could have a rational disagreement. How do we, you know, organize our tax system in order to get the best outcome how do we do spend how do we solve this problem how do we solve that problem no it's ideological actually another one where, where it's really strong and again we see the effects here in california's crime where it's totally ideological it is all about this and i guess that's a subset of the race thing because it's driven by the um what you know what they call criminal justice reform which was initiated after ferguson in 2014 that movement to have you know um the the progressive da's movement as they called it which has ended up with the absolute catastrophe of these hard left district attorneys that are basically decriminalizing crime all over the place and causing massive pain and suffering everywhere that Democrats are in charge. It's the ideology again. It's not about what, what is practical or what works. Um, there used to be a democratic approach to politics and you saw it as well in other countries, you saw it in, in the UK with, you know, the, the, the kind of approach to um, politics you saw with Tony Blair and, and so on, a more centrist, reasonable approach where you could disagree, but it was kind of around practical, pragmatic approaches to try and solve problems. That's out the window now. It's the hard left ideologues that are in charge. That's who's driving the train. And the most obvious example of that was that interview with Pramila Jayapal, where she actually couldn't even bring herself to condemn sexual violence but used by Hamas as a weapon of war without throwing in the hard left ideological talking point. It was highly revealing and we see it right across the board. And, you know, we got to fight back against it because the consequences of, of this hard left ideology in action are just a disaster on every single policy issue. OK, so for our policy conversation today, let's look at what the policies are that the uh, that are flowing from what I was just talking about, this hard left ideology. Are they addressing the big issues that people want addressed, the, these Democrats? What, what are the policy uh, focus? What's the policy focus these days? Uh, well, we saw it in action <laughs> in San Francisco. It's laughable, really, but um, it's, it's not funny if you live in San Francisco. You know, we've got a lot of problems in this country and in, in, in lots of areas. People are upset about the cost of living for good reason. The, the, uh, the fact that crime is out of control in so many places, quality of life is down, on and on. Lots of things to focus on. Practical things that you would hope would be the focus of policy deliberations in our representative bodies. But oh no, <laughs> this week, San Francisco, for example, what are they focused on? A resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Fantastic. 
That's their focus. And I'm sure everyone in God, you know, the Hamas leadership and the Israeli leadership, everyone involved are going to be sort of waiting with bated breath to see uh, how that one turns out. The demand for immediate ceasefire. It's not just San Francisco. Um, Here's a bunch of other places around the country where Democrats have, have, have either passed or proposed a resolution demanding a ceasefire. Uh, you've got Providence, Rhode Island, Detroit, Michigan, Akron, Ohio, New Haven, Connecticut, also here in California, Richmond. They're not actually working on practical, positive, common sense policies to solve our problems. They're not interested in that. And that's that's why I think you've got this massive disconnect um, with politics these days, is the politicians seem to be just on this kind of, it's, I, we used to call it virtue signaling. It's not virtue signaling at all. It's ideology signaling. That's what, they're, that's what they are all about. It's not about solving problems most of the time. It is about signaling where they stand on these ideological questions to make sure they're saying the right things so that the activists are happy with them and continue to give them their support. That's what's going on. And that's why... It, there's this there's this massive sort of disillusionment going on with with the political system. It's not Trump or the you know me whatever the accusation constantly is. It's the fact that the people who are elected to solve problems are busy doing this other stuff. And you know what it really reminds me of all these you know ceasefire resolutions being passed by local government. It really takes me back to what you saw in the UK when I was just just sort of coming of age politically um, in the sort of mid mid eighties really. Um, and there was this phenomenon where, where the Labour Party in England was taken over by the hard left, just as the Democratic Party here in America has been taken over by the hard left. And, and, and at the time, one of the big debates was about the deployment of cruise missiles in, in the UK and in Europe um, as part of Ronald Reagan's um, strategy to win the Cold War and confront the Soviet Union. So what, what did these councils do around the country? The equivalence um, back then in the day in England of, you know, these these places, Providence, Rhode Island and Akron, Ohio and San Francisco and all these places passing these resolutions demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. They passed resolutions declaring themselves, their, their, their council districts to be nuclear free zones, right? Nuclear free. We don't want nuclear weapons on our soil. Not that they were ever proposed, right? They don't military bases. These are the kind of local council in London. And they would, they would just, just announce that they were, they'd pass a resolution saying we are a nuclear free zone. And then they put up a sign. You know, like, I remember this in Is Islington was one in London. I don't know if people are familiar with it. And you sort of drive in, walk in and on the street said, is it a nuclear free zone? And it's just preposterous. Absolutely preposterous. Meanwhile, the, you know, the schools are a disaster and people are, you know, poverty is increasing and so on and so forth. But they're not dealing with that. They're passing resolutions about nuclear free zones. And it's exactly the same phenomenon here. This is what happens when you have people in charge who are ideologues rather than uh, positive practical policymakers. That is the lesson of today's policy section. All right. Now joining us for California Corner is our friend Jennifer Horn from AM870, The Morning Answer, Los Angeles and Southern California, where I am a very happy and sometimes croaky regular guest. <laughs> um, I was last Friday. So I spoke to Jen, you and Grant last Friday morning, the night after the debate. We're now, you know, a week or so after the debate. Let's just start with this, this point. Everyone can agree that on the facts and the substance, of course, DeSantis is the winner, Newsom sure. the loser, because the, the facts speak for themselves. We don't need to, you know, rehearse all that now because we go on about it the whole time. And in fact, we've got a few more examples to talk about after our debate conversation today about why, you know, California is just, you know, going in the wrong direction 
on everything on every issue is it's a disaster and florida is doing well generally speaking on most mm -hmm. issues so on the substance no question it was more the performance thing and i said uh, you know the next morning well you know what i thought just you know despite being wrong on everything and and, and of course you know saying all these things which are false um, Newsom kind of did a good job in terms of being the, the kind of charismatic politician. And so in that sense, may have won a few people over. And you disagree with that. And a lot of people disagree with that. I was on with Bill Hemmer. He did, a lot of, everyone basically disagreed. And it feels like actually that's the consensus. Even Democrats, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, in the New York Times, for example, commentators saying, yeah, it was kind of, they were, they were, he was annoying and didn't really, it was the first time on the national stage for Newsom and wouldn't have really persuaded people and so on. What are your reflections now a few days on from the debate? Yeah, no, it's actually, I'm so glad it happened. And at first I thought, is anybody going to really pay attention? Is it going to be okay? And I really thought it was going to be a disaster because we have not seen strong performances from Ron DeSantis as he's been a presidential candidate throughout the entire debate process. I mean, I think it's been a really big disappointment. He's disappeared. He looks whiny. He's had a really hard time finding the it factor on the debate stage. So I was concerned because Gavin right. Newsom is, as you described, such a polished and great politician politician. But I think the only I mean, that you go to the source for who won the debate and you have to look at Gavin Newsom's wife, Jennifer, who apparently, according to reports, ended it. They were going to go longer. They had both right. agreed to go an additional 20 minutes. And apparently Jennifer Newsom said, "Uh, uh, you're done. And yes, Ron DeSantis had the facts on his side. It's not that he delivered, you know, a fantastic pizzazz filled debate performance, but he had the facts on his side. He had the truth on his side. And I think he did a really good job bringing it up to Gavin Newsom. Now, could he have done better holding him to requiring Gavin Newsom to answer a question? Obviously. But Gavin Newsom, to me, looked like he was uh, he didn't have the answers. He would always try to deflect. He would always try to make it about identity politics. And he'd, he'd, he'd always do this little tick where he'd say, with all due respect, governor. And that's how you knew he was going to change the direction <laughs> of the question or the answer. And so yeah. I actually think President Trump, I think every future uh, Republican candidate should be writing a thank you letter to Ron DeSantis today because we actually got to see Gavin Newsom break down on a debate stage on the national level. And I think these lessons can be taken and actually show people who Gavin Newsom is, because the risk is if you don't push back, like we saw in that Hannity interview, he looks really good. He's slick. He's slimy. Yes, he just blows past the facts. He just completely. He's yeah. I mean, this is what I said at the time. You know, he's completely shameless actually about mm -hmm. about just sort of not engaging and and just saying stuff that's just ridiculous i've got a couple of examples of that yeah um that i th and actually funnily enough this is my you know this is a very kind of in the weeds crit critique mm -hmm. of ronda santis but i think it's a reason i'll just say it and you see what you think which is that actually because newsom had gone up against I don't know if that's the right term, but had been on with Sean Hannity yeah. um, <laughs> twice before in recent months. Uh, he had this. He had a sit down interview. Then, then again after the the second presidential debate in the Reagan Library. So we've seen just recently how Newsom responds when the kind of obvious points about the state of California are put to him. We know what he's going to say. Yep. And so I would have liked Newsom, uh, sorry, uh, Ron DeSantis, to have kind of. What you know, looked at that and said, okay, well, what's the real truth? And, and and gone behind, so he could have had a better comeback. Because actually, if you look at some of these things, I, I was just at, I did an event at Riverside, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, in Southern California last, uh, the end of the last week, on the Friday, day after the debate, evening after the debate, a uh, state senator, Republican state senator came up to me and he, and he said, you know this thing that Newsom keeps saying? Um, and he said it in the Hannity interviews and he said it in the debate, which is, well, actually, there are more people going from Florida to California. And he, it was his way of pushing back against the exodus point. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know what that's based on? Um, most of that is is transfers of true of, of of Marines between Florida and Camp Pendleton. <laughs> and it's nothing to do with, like but and like that's a great point. And and you know, I'm it's just like a brilliant way if if he if you'd have sort of done that digging and, and thrown that back at him, it's, it's a great way of kind of responding. The other one is this th- ridiculous point that Newsom makes about again, he said it in Hannity and he said it in the debate, which is when when confronted with the fact we have the highest taxes in the country, totally deflects in this sort of point about, well, we tax you know, working, you, you tax millionaires, uh, working people more than we tax millionaires, whatever. And it's just completely bogus. Wall Street Journal had a whole kind of editorial picking that apart after the debate. It's based on one study from a left-wing think tank in 2018, which excludes things like sales tax and all the things that working people pay. And it's just a sort of totally bogus statistic, yeah. which he could have unpicked in a better way if he'd have kind of prepared a bit better, I think. That would be my criticism for Ron DeSantis as well, because the ones that made me scream, first of all, the census one was so funny. For, as soon <laughs> As soon as he said it, I was on Google and I was going, okay, I know that's not right. And I was fact checking on Twitter as we right. went. But the one that gets me, and you hear it from, from liberal politicians in California all the time, is the crime stats, that crime is down. When everybody feels like crime is up and it's worse than it's ever been, I've lived here my whole life. And so it is ridiculous. It's not that crime is down. The numbers are down because then, they're just passing everything off as a misdemeanor, not a felony. So exactly you, have, right. you can't just say that it's down. You have to say we're reclassifying. So I was hoping for pushback there. I was also hoping for pushback with the homeless crisis. And yes, the poop map was great. I'm glad he brought some visual aids. But I think he should have said, as mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Newsom promised he was going to fix homelessness. And now you're lieutenant governor and governor, and it's worse than ever. So what gives? And I think there was room for him to push back. And what I was really surprised with in Newsom's performance is that with Hannity, what made him so good, when he was faced with the question of homelessness, he said, oh, it's a horrible problem. I'm embarrassed. I'm doing everything I can to fix it. Well, what more can you say to someone when they say that? But in this debate, he was so hot under the collar that he didn't do the whole humble pie nonsense that he did. I think that's right. With Hannity. So that's the key. Get under his skin, get under his skin early, and he's going to be a much weaker sparring partner than if you give him a chance to, to go down the road of the really caring Gavin Newsom. Yeah. I mean, I think that in the end, I think that's all true. And I, and I do think I should sort of walk back a little my kind of sense that Newsom won, as it were. Um, but I think that the, however, in terms of, you know, immediate political objectives, I don't think it, I don't know, we'll see. I, I don't get a sense it's given Ron DeSantis a big boost. No, of any, it, I mean, it's not he certainly moving did, the needle for anybody. No, no. And, but with Newsom, I think that it, you know, it got a big audience, you know, relative mm-hmm. to what you normally see on. An, and so, you you know, you by definition, people watched it who wouldn't have otherwise um, been watching Fox News that night and probably quite a few Democrats. And I think that the real partisan Democrat. Right. And actually, for Newsom's purposes, that's what matters right now. The primary voter 
in a yeah. democratic primary. I think they probably would have, because they, they're kind of fired up. They probably would have liked the rudeness and the aggression and the sort of yelling at Ron DeSantis, calling him a liar and a bully and whatever. And so I think it probably did help Newsom a little bit with just that narrow audience of the of the real kind of democratic base. But I don't think it did him any favors looking back on it with a broader national audience. Yeah. And I actually I, I would jump onto that because that was one of the things I had said before the debate even started is that it really doesn't necessarily help either of these two. But I would amend that it did help Newsom more than DeSantis. DeSantis is where DeSantis, I think, is going to be through this primary process. But I think it did make people who were souring on him a little bit say, well, maybe he's going to be someone viable in 2028, maybe down the road. Yeah. I think maybe that's the little smidge of help that DeSantis got, because I think a lot of people thought maybe he blew his campaign up. But for Newsom, what it did was put him on the national stage without him having to declare his candidacy. And so in that respect, yes, I think Newsom comes out with more to gain because he showed himself to be someone with a pulse and who can put together a sentence, whether he said things that made sense or he was lying or he was arrogant or he changed the subject. Uh, I don't think any of us could imagine Biden, even on his best day yeah. lately, no, being able to no, stand up there for an hour and 40 minutes and try to defend his record. It just wouldn't, it couldn't of happen. And then, and then let's just sort of leave it here in terms of the debate. But I think that the other just true point to, to note in the last you know year or so, you've got to take your hat off to the like incredibly, you know, de deliberate um, political operation mm -hmm. mounted by Gavin Newsom and his advisors and his team to make him, to lift him up to be the preeminent Democrat on the national stage. Yeah. That, was, that was a deliberate act of, you know, and it started with the, we can trace it back. And everyone said at the time, what is he doing? What is this about? That ad, do you remember he took out an ad talking about California is the real freedom state and having a go at Florida. And that was the first step. And then after that, you had think, you know, one after another, he was weighing in on abortion and he was weighing in on the, and then doing a tour of the red states, constantly attacking DeSantis, picking on other red state governors, you know, and just bit by bit, he's lifted mm -hmm. himself from the pack. And it used to be this list of other people, you know, well, you know, the, the next generation and you'd have all these other people on the list and he'd be one of them. He's clearly the preeminent. I mean, he oh, really he's has done run that. As, an, as an incumbent and, and, whenever he jumps in. And so I, that's, that's, you know, like that is just shows that, as an as a political operation that he he and his team that's impressive i just yeah. got to say that um but let's get back to the reality of california because there's a few things we're seeing right now that are just sort of amazing but not amazing to those of us who live here i suppose but still let's just start with this this is this was just breaking as we um as we as we take this jen which is this i mean i keep saying unbelievable it's no, nothing's <laughs> unbelievable uh, anymore this is the oakland teachers who are now doing this is on on the you know the 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 um the Hamas war on Israel yeah. um saying that well of course what we really need what our kids really need bearing in mind that California has the lowest literacy in the country right and was it a third of students uh, only a third of students can get a, a grade level on math and i think That's it's right. 40% on english but never mind any of that what they really need is a teach in on the intifada and Palestine and indoctrination about hating Israel and supporting Hamas, basically. I mean, that's what this is. That's what they're planning in Oakland. 
unbelievable is the right word. Do you ever just think that you're waking up like in a fever dream or like you're being punked because you just think it can't get any weirder? But it's true. I've been totally, and we've talked about this, I think, on the radio program, Steve. Obviously, what happened on October 7th was appalling and it should affect all of us at our core what happened to to Israel this attack but what has really made me sick since is just watching all these people particularly young people march all over the place defending a terrorist group that would rather kill a woman than listen to her on TikTok or see her marching in the streets right i mean it just it kind of boggles the mind as to where this comes from but now we know and the story out of oakland is stunning even the superintendent came out and said we don't want you to do this it was the oakland unified school district yeah. that is now putting in this teaching for Palestinian, I guess, causes. And I think it's really interesting that we're conflating Palestinian causes with Hamas terror, but uh, that's a story for another day. But part of the curriculum for children, mind you, this is not like college level. We're talking about elementary school, junior high, high school is, I, I almost fell out of my chair. Draw what you think a Zionist leader looks like. What? <laughs> Can you imagine walking up to a six-year-old? I mean, they can't read. No, they really, what? this is really true. It's not a joke, right? They can't, re they're not being taught to read properly the, yes. or doing basic math that would enable them to have a flourishing life of opportunity in America. And yet this is what they're being, I mean, it's it's just, you know, and of course, let's just say, of course, you know, I want every, you know, we, we, with our kids and, you know, like even before all of this, I remember having conversations with, with uh, you know, just talking about the situation in the Middle East. It was in the news for some other reason, not, not to do with this. This was way before, like last year or something. And we were going through the whole thing and the formation of the State of Israel and the fact that the Palestinian people were displaced and then, but then they had an opportunity for a state and this and that. And, you know, we went through it all and there were millions of refugees. And, you know, this is important history that everyone should know. Sure. The real history, objectively, the facts, but not propaganda, which is what this is. It's absolutely right. And describe, I mean, and it's also, you have to think about what's appropriate for these kids. I, I, my of goodness, course. you have to describe one of the, one of the other items of the curriculum was to describe what you think a terror attack looks like. What is a terror attack? Oh I mean, God. these are things that we wouldn't have rolled out in our schools after nine 11. We were trying to, to protect kids and to give people some context. If you're going to address it, let's talk about the history of the area. Let's talk about real things instead of just creating more more propaganda, more indoctrination, and yes. just misinformation in the schools. Part of it is I is for intifada. Right. Like that's real. That's not a joke. It's not a joke. I is like this is how they're teaching ABCs now. I mm -hmm. is for intifada. What are you talking about? You know, what, what are we going to have? A is for anti-Semitism, maybe. Right. That would be that would be you know at least a bit of balance. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And just on this particular point about the schools, I mean, remember Oakland was where you had the you had the in the in the city council meeting. Um, they had just the other day. They had someone's, I mean, you know, they obviously they, they condemned Israel, not Hamas, you know, of course. Um, but they also had someone stand up and say that the whole thing was a fake news, that Israel wasn't even attacked, like that it was made up. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous, racist, and plays into genocidal propaganda that is flooding our media and that we should be doing everything possible to combat. I support the right of Palestinians to resist occupation, including through Hamas, the armed wing of the unified Palestinian resistance. As Barry Wise pointed out she, on, on Twitter, she said, um, you know, she, she, you know, tweeted the video of, of this person saying it was all made up and said, I look forward to the New York Times investigation of the, of the latest QAnon phenomenon. I mean, that, it's, it's, it's sort of mad.
it is it's gotten so crazy i was talking to joel pollock who you probably know from breitbart on the morning answer on uh, the show that i host with grant sinchfield on uh wednesday morning and he was he was bringing up something and he said you know because we were talking about this issue in oakland and then we kind of moved on to gavin newsom having to cancel the christmas tree lighting in sacramento because of the threat of these pro-palestinian people who are going to be coming in and interrupting every tree lighting, apparently. And Joel had a great line. I would love to steal it, but I can't. I have to give him the credit. He said, if you really want to influence Americans with your propaganda, probably best not to go after their Christmas trees and Santa Claus. Like, you know, you're not so, picking the best so vessel crazy. for the message. Uh, I know. It, it's it's so crazy. Um, let's just end with it. You know, but meanwhile, all this sort of, you know, th- this is what's so frustrating, I think, for people, just regular people watching all this is that the, the political conversation is, is all this kind of extreme, it's a ridiculous, yeah. so far removed from their lives. Meanwhile, daily life is just, you know, getting, it seems to be getting worse and worse. Here's just the latest example in terms of cost of living, a massive issue for us here in California. Late, here's just another example. Two of, here's the headline, this is from the San Jose Mercury News. Two California cities make top 10 list of world's most expensive cities in which to live in in 2023 two in, in california in the world you know and you know one of the others is zurich in switzerland you know like where like all the kind of you know people stash their cash <laughs> from because you know ill-gotten gains around the world zurich. so we're up there with zurich in terms of like cost of living i mean it's just it's, it's by the way it's la and san francisco of LA course. is actually, you know, LA number six in the world, sixth most expensive city to live. I mean, uh, just, we feel it. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's just unbelievable. I will tell you, you know, I'm a big Christmas person. I love the Christmas holidays. We're getting into the holiday season. I went to Cost Plus to buy wrapping paper, three rolls, small rolls of wrapping paper, $17.99 for something wow. that you throw away. Now, it just, and that may seem so small, but this is just You're another example. Right. That it's it's twenty bucks to buy wrapping paper. Think how much your Christmas presents are going to cost this year. It's yeah, it's pretty it crazy, outrageous. and so much of our cost of living in California. And I know this is so close to what you've been doing with Golden Together. Are these ridiculous regulations? If we just clawed back some of the environmental hoops that companies, that builders, all the regulations that they have to go through, we would be able to have cheaper housing. Goods and services would be better because we could actually drill. We could actually, you know, give people a choice, bring back some competition. This is a created crisis. It doesn't have to be as expensive as it is. Of course we pay for the weather. Of course we pay for the coast, but it doesn't have to be like it is. This is something that's created by the leadership over the last 20 years. We're no longer yeah. the state to come to for opportunities. Yeah. I mean, and to, to your point, you know, we, again, the data doesn't, we, we have the the worst business climate in America, mm-hmm. the worst 50th out of 50 in terms of yep. the ability to do business in, in, in a way that's kind of helpful to growth. And, and the regulations point is really, really important. Let's just sort of leave it here because you, you people often talk about taxes and we have the highest taxes. So that is a direct way that people are affected in terms of the cost of living. You, you literally pay that directly, of course, to the government when you add up all the taxes, property tax, sales tax, um, income tax, etc. The state tax is the highest in the country. But the regulations is a hidden tax because what that, that those are things that are re- required of companies that increase their costs. So a big one is the energy. So we talk about gas prices. And the fact that they're the highest in the country, of course. Um, but of course, the energy costs, the businesses pay energy costs at all. So if you raise energy bills 
every single business, every small, you know, every sandwich shop, every retailer, they have their energy bills go up. And so their prices have to go up exactly as you say, the environmental regulations. And then you add on to that things like the bureaucracy, permits, lawyers fees you have to have constantly because the regulations change every year. Then you look at things like the employment regulations, what you have to pay your staff. Of course, we want people to be well paid and get have good working conditions. That is true. But you don't have to go to the extreme to the point where employing people costs so much that adds to your costs. And, and so if you're running a business, you, you know, you've got to make money. Otherwise you go out right. of business. And so you have to increase your prices. So the regulate, the regulatory burden is, is often presented and Republicans, I think are kind of somewhat guilty of this as kind of red tape regulation, all that stuff as just being about business. And that when they make those arguments, it's like, we're trying to help business. And that's true. We should want to help business. But in the end, all these regulation costs get passed on to the consumer. So actually, it's not just about helping business. It's about the cost of the regulations are about the cost of living for everyone. Exactly as you said, I'll give you the last word, Jen. I think, you know what, we're lined up in agreement on this because it is not just about big businesses. They are, it, it is just what it is. It is reality that businesses are in business to make money. And so, yes, everything that the state does to try to punish big business is going to be passed right along to us. And that goes for energy. It goes to oil. It goes to every other business that operates in California. And we can make life better if we just exactly. ease up. Oh. <laughs> well, you, you're Can not we just get do that. a ease up 2024? That's going to be my new campaign slogan. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that with these Democrats. I'll tell you. <laughs> Fantastic. Great to see you. I'm hoping you I mean, next time we speak, actually, I don't know when that will be. I think we'll do one more before the holidays with you. Um, my, my voice will be back to normal. It's getting it's better. It's sounding better, better okay. and better by the minute. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. See you soon. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Steve. So here is what I'd like to get off my chest this week. Um, I'm going to use two words now that will make you think I'm going to talk about all sorts of things that you probably don't want to hear about at this stage of the show. Um, but don't worry, it's not going to be what you think. The words are Liz Cheney. I have a lot to say about Liz Cheney, who is out with her new book. Um, but it's not, as you may think, about January the 6th and Trump and all the rest of it. There's been lots of discussion around that. We don't need to get into that here. There's a very specific thing that um, I'm fired up about when it comes to Liz Cheney's appearances on the media this week. And it, it tells you about the absolute cynicism that you see from some of these Washington politicians these days and the kind of interplay between um, th them, the media, and the media in the broader sense, because she's got a book out, which is, of course, you know, the publishing industry, part of the media. And so the particular thing I want to focus on is this absolutely ridiculous, preposterous suggestion that Liz Cheney is going to run for president. Of course, she's not going to run for president. The whole idea of Liz Cheney running for president as a third party candidate is a complete joke. She knows that. She knows she's not going to run for president. Um, she knows that if she did run for president, it would probably do the opposite of what she claims she wants to do, which is stop Donald Trump, but actually help Donald Trump. She knows that. So why is she solemnly, when asked about um, running for president, well, you know, I'm giving it serious consideration and I haven't let you know in the new year. Whatever. It's because she's trying to sell a book. It is totally cynical. It is totally manipulative. Here's how I bet it went down. The, the publishers and they're, you know, the, the publicists, we're trying to sell the book for Liz Cheney. They're thinking about, well, how do we get publicity for the book? 
So that people are talking about it and then they buy the book. Um, and they call it, in, in, in the jargon for this is earned media. So paid media is like when you pay for advert, which are advertisements and ads you see on the TV and elsewhere, billboards, that's paid media. Earned media is when it's free, as it were. It's publicity, it's PR. And, and the idea is you, you earn it by saying something interesting that the media will cover. So the trick they always try and play is like, well, what can we think of to say that will get headlines, that will get people talking about this person and their book? And so you know perfectly well. You know, she said everything there is to say about Donald Trump and January the 6th, and we know what she thinks. Um, and, and you can predict what's in her book. And she had the January the 6th hearings and on and on. So that's not new. That's not interesting. That's not going to make a headline. So here's probably how it went down. The publicist said, well, what if we float the idea that you're going to run for president to challenge Donald Trump, however preposterous that is? Um, they Then what they do is they go to the interviewer. You know, if you ask her whether she's running for president, you might get a good uh, a good answer that will make a headline for your show. So, of course, he's interested in doing that because he wants to promote his show and his interview. And he wants the interview to make headlines. So everyone has a, a, a self-interest here. They all want a story that everyone's sort of circulating and talking about and discussing. And so she's in the news and in the headlines at the time that her book is out. So there's awareness of the book and you get more copies of the book sold. That's the anatomy of this. That's what's going on here. It's not about her actually seriously running for president. That's not going to happen. I mean, look, if it does happen, of course, I'll be very happy to take all this back and do a massive mea culpa. Of course, I'll do that. But I am pretty certain Liz Cheney has absolutely no intention of running for president. And this whole idea, this whole story that's been going around this uh, this week that she's going to maybe run for president as a third party candidate is a total fabrication in order to sell books and create publicity and awareness. It's completely cynical, completely self-interested. And by the way, completely against what she claims to be for, which is, you know, a more sober, serious conversation that elevates our politics and our democracies. This is the exact opposite of all of that. All right, everyone, hope you enjoyed that episode of The Steve Hilton Show. Make sure you follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about the show um, and join us next week for the next episode of The Steve Hilton Show. 